By the way, everybody, quick note. We now have a Slack channel dedicated just to listeners of the Co-op Cast and viewers of One Stop Co-op Shop, Colin's video channel on YouTube with solo and cooperative playthroughs. If you would like to join the Slack, it is by invite only, so please send us an email request to mvpboardgames at gmail.com or send us a message through Twitter at mvpboardgames. We'd love to get you in there and have some really awesome discussions about the episodes and anything else in the world of cooperative board gaming. Yeah, it'd be really cool. We'd love to have discussions about each of our episodes, and that way we have feedback to talk about at the beginning of each one. I I think that would be a really neat addition. And hey, tell us some games you want to hear about. Uh, Even if you don't want to join the Slack, we would always love to hear what you're excited about. Cool. Well, thank you, everybody. Hello, and welcome to Co-op Cast, where game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly talk about cooperative board games. Join us each week as we break down one game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hello, hello, everyone. And welcome to episode 30-something of Co-op Cast. 30-something, a magic, magic number. So a little over a year old now. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm walking and talking. I'm extremely advanced for my age. Just one year old and already playing board games. And recording a podcast about it. That's pretty amazing. I'm sure there's some podcast somewhere out there that has infants just kind of like mashing their mouths on a microphone. Or cooing at each other. <laughs> yeah, just five hours of continuous cooing. Uh, yes, I would not find that relaxing at all. But you know what can be relaxing? Although actually probably not. Either of the games we're going to review today. We're doing a little twofer because both of these games are fairly similar. We're doing an older game with very limited information and communication, Hanabi. And then a very new game, not even released in the US, but being ported over by Pandasaurus, I believe, The Mind. Yeah, it's definitely coming from Pandasaurus, and we're not doing this just because they've signed one of our games. We're doing this because The Mind is a really good game. But I did want to put that disclaimer out there that we do have an affiliation with Pandasaurus, although a loose one. You know, there are many people that have published our games, so we're not playing favorites here. And then uh, after we've talked about Hanabi and The Mind in that order, we're going to talk about games that have limited information and limited communication in general, both of these being prime examples of that. Absolutely. All right, Mike. So without further ado, you want to get into the general theme and gameplay of Hanabi. Oh, man, this is a rich, deeply developed theme here. So in Hanabi, you are a master fireworks performer, (laughs) setter upper. I don't don't know. A pyrotechnician. I think maybe that's the, uh, the official term. And you're trying to put on a flawless fireworks show. But Whatever, except for the art being pretty that goes along with it. It has nothing to do with the game. In the actual play of Hanabi, you and up to five players total, so I guess that's you and up to four players, I should have said, will have four or five cards in their hand at a time. And these cards are in one of five suits, and within each of the suit you have five numbers, one through five. And the basic idea is, in sort of a solitaire-ish way, you and the group are trying to work together to play each of the different colors in ascending order. 
So you can't play number two of a color until the number one's already on the board. You can't play the three until the two's down, and you're trying to get all the way up to the five. But the big wrinkle is that you are holding your cards facing all the other players in sort of an Indian poker way, if anybody's familiar with that game. So you have to give each other clues as to the identity of the cards in your hand so that you can figure out which one should be played. And on your turn, you have three different options. You can either play a card, hoping it's the next card in the ascending order. And if it's not, you lose one of your three fuse tokens. If you lose all three, you lose the game. Or you can discard a card, but there are only a limited number of each value of cards within each suit. So if you discard the wrong cards, you might cut yourself off from ever finishing that suit entirely. And finally, you can give a clue. So you've got these eight clue tokens, and as you give clues, you spend them, and when you discard cards, you get them back. So you've got this kind of give and take of clue tokens. And when you give a clue, you pick another player, and you can point to any of the cards in their hand, and you can say either what color all of those cards are or what value all of those cards are, but they have to all share one of those characteristics. So I could point to two cards in someone's hand that are three values and say these are threes, but I would have to point to every three. I couldn't leave out some. And you're also not supposed to give clues in terms of which order you point to them. And that's about it for the entire game, but the feel of it is that you're tensely trying to manage your clues and discarding clues when you need to, and sometimes often having to discard things or play things when you're not entirely sure. But you're trying to give intelligent clues to eventually work your way up, and usually you're not going to get a perfect game. I think in uh, my wife and I playing the game over 30 times, we've only had one perfect game ever. But you at least want to get as many cards down in the correct order as possible, because that gives you a score. So that's the general feel and play of Hanabi. Yeah, the theme for this one is not present at all. That isn't one of my top three. I'll give that away as a clue. <laughs> I know. My, my, my number one, man, is the theme. I feel like I'm actually setting off fireworks. It's brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So I guess I'll start with my number three. And I guess we should explain this for new listeners. It's typically top five, but this time we're going to do top three. Basically, we tell you the top three things we think you should know about the game in ascending order. So starting with the least important thing, going to the most important thing. So my number three for Hanabi is the hint system or the clue system. It actually reminded me of the Dresden Files, and I didn't think about that until I started going through this list. But it's similar to the Dresden file and the fact that you're discarding something to get some currency that you can spend later. Although I think it's more interesting here because it's a more tense decision because a lot of times you're going to be discarding cards and you don't know exactly what they are. And you're taking a little bit of a calculated gamble that they aren't something you're going to need later. So I actually think it's done maybe even better here because it does bring a lot of tenseness to the game. And as you see those clue tokens diminishing, it really ramps up the tension. So at some point, you know you're going to have to discard a card. And sometimes you're making decisions based on that. Like, well, I could ask one more clue, but then the other person would have to discard a card. And I don't know if they have enough information. So my number three, I thought the hint system was really neat in how they did it. Man, it's interesting. I did not think we would be aligned with each other for this game with so few things but my number three is the clue economy and how tight it is so basically the same as you and yeah when i played the dresden files i played so much hanabi i was immediately like oh it's hanabi but with a lot more stuff going on <laughs> and uh, I, I think dresden files does it very well i wouldn't say that one is better than the other but i do think that the tightness of the clue economy does as you said greatly increase the tension 
And generally the game slowly wears you down as you run out of clues. And usually in the mid to end point, you have zero clues many turns. And it leads to these blind plays and blind draws that really up the kind of stress and tension of the game. So yeah, totally agreeing with you. Definitely a good thing. A fun resource to manage in the game. So what's your number two, Peter? All right, so for my number two, I wrote that the cards are turned away from yourself. So it's really interesting, and I know it's been done before in other games, but I don't think it's ever been done in a cooperative game. It's usually done in some kind of a competitive game, and I think it does really well for this cooperative nature and the fact that you know what else is going on everywhere else at the table except with your own hand. And unfortunately, you have to make decisions with your own hand, so the other people at the table have to kind of give you clues as to what you can play. And it's kind of a developed skill. So I do think it's really interesting, actually, how this just having your hand reversed really changes the way that this game plays. So that's my number two is your cards are turned away from you. My number two is sort of related to that. It's an emotional kind of experience that comes from the cards being turned away. And that is the exquisite sense of paranoia and fear whenever you lay down a card, either for discard or play. And especially for play, because again, three misplayed cards and you lose the entire game. I was just playing with my wife a few minutes before this review just to kind of get a feel of Hanabi again, because I've been playing a lot of the mine, but not as much Hanabi recently. And it's just great and terrifying and can get a little stressful. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, yeah, especially so there's three copies of each value one, two copies of each value two through four and one copy of each value five. So when you discard something, you really have a sense of what the odds are that that will be something that will ruin your perfect game because I always play with the intention of going for a perfect game. So if I know that I'm discarding a green card and there's already a green four out and we need a green four, I'm like, oh, God, don't let it be a four or five. Don't let it be a four or five. And (laughs) even though you're not supposed to give each other hints, uh, my wife will watch me and I'll watch her carefully as I'm taking the card. And I try to have a poker face and not give any hints to not cheat at the game. But it's sort of fun to watch the person squirming. Is it a squirm of anticipation because they want you to play it? Or is it a squirm of terror because you're going to ruin the entire game? So although it can lead to some disagreements and some harsh words, I think that the the paranoia and fear laying down a card is definitely a pro for Hanabi as well. I totally agree. I think this is probably the best part of the game for me is the amount of tension and stress that it creates. And it's funny because those don't sound like good things. And we'll get a little bit into this in the design discussion because I have it as one of my points. But I really do think tension is one of the coolest things that comes out of these hidden info games. So, really good one, number two. All right, well, this was fast, but what's your number one for Hanabi? So my number one is the language that gets created around Hanabi. It's interesting, when the game first came out, I heard a lot of podcasts talking about it, and I even think there was a lot of groupthink that went on between groups. You start developing this nonverbal language, and I'm not sure how much of that is actually cheating. The nice part about cooperative games is you take that to the level you want to take it to. But there's certainly, even in giving the clues, if I tell you these three cards are green, and then I tell you one of those green cards is a one is my next clue, now you know exactly what the card is. So even if it's not some kind of a hidden language within, there is some kind of a language that gets created. 
And there are certain clues you start giving over and over. And if somebody gives you a clue that really helped you, you kind of store that in the back of your mind and you use it again later when you're trying to give somebody else a clue. You're like, wow, that really helped me. Let me do the same thing for this person. And sometimes they'll catch on and sometimes they won't. So you do develop this language between the players. It's amazing how you can get into each other's minds as you play this game. So my number one is the hidden language or code that you form with a group of players as you're going along. Yeah, and my number one is very similar, although, again, I wouldn't get into the cheating part of things. But when you give clues and the clever tricks you can make within this very limited clue system is a big pro for me. The strict limits that are given on what you can say, and again, we're talking about limited communication today, so this is right in there. But the fact that you can only say a number or a color and they have to all be consistent and has to name every single one in the hand... There's a lot of cool things you can do in there, and a lot of it comes from, and this is sort of a hint to those who want to be better at Hanabi, a lot of it comes from keeping track of which cards are newer in your hand and which cards are older. So this is the first tip I'll give to anyone playing Hanabi, is have a direction of your hand. Almost like games with an offer where cards slowly get pushed off to the side. You know, keep the newest cards on the left and the oldest cards on the right, that kind of a thing. And that's really what's going to get you to the higher level play where perfect games are really a possible thing. And I don't think that's some kind of like hidden trick that would take forever to figure out. But I think it really leads to, as you said, a hidden language, sort of a clue within the clue. Because it's not just the clues you're giving, but it's the timing of when you give those clues that makes the the tactical nature of the game really shine. Right. And it's funny because that's the language that you developed with your wife. But in another group that language may be completely different. Maybe for other groups, they have clues around the numbers. Like, when am I giving you numbers? It's probably because you just drew a number that was important or something like that. Yeah. So so I do think it is important. You're right. I think the timing of when you get stuff. What's neat about that to me is it's a learned thing. This isn't something you come into the game with. You'll play once or twice, and you'll start learning and seeing patterns in how clues are given or whatever else. And so it's neat how you can get better at something so quickly. Yeah, and it does remind me of Magic Maze, going back to one of our previous reviews, in that I think there might be a few ideal strategies to pursue, but learning those strategies with the group is very fun. And then it still remains fun or becomes even more fun when you're trying to execute those strategies as efficiently and accurately as possible. I feel the exact same thing here in Hanabi, where even when your group has figured out how to do things, there's still enough randomness and chance that you need to execute that plan to perfection to get the full win. And I really enjoy that. It makes me feel kind of accomplished as a gamer and within a group to make that happen. All right, so final thoughts time. I guess I'll go first. You know, I haven't played this game a lot. I'll be quite honest with you. The only time I played it, I think, was with you and Vanessa years ago. So this game came out a long time ago, and I haven't played it or thought of it in all of those years. So that says something kind of negative about it. But as I'm thinking back about it, I didn't have a negative experience with the game. I just, for whatever reason, never went back to it. And I know you're the opposite, and so we'll get into that with your part. But for me, maybe it was the lack of theme. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just, 
I don't know, because it's informed games like The Mind, it's informed game like Dresden File, and I think the mechanisms are really neat. So I don't know why I haven't gone back to this. I do certainly think for the price point, you're getting a great game here. And you're getting something, you know, that if you can get a, a good group together, that you can have a lot of fun with it. I, I think it's good, but I think we're going to talk about one that's a lot better coming up. So I will save the rest of my thoughts for that. But certainly for the price point, you can't go wrong getting Hanabi. Yeah, I think it's an amazing value. Really fun game. It's definitely higher on my list of favorites than you, Peter, from what you're saying. And a lot of that is because it's wonderful to play two-player. My wife and I have played it, as I said, dozens of times, and we really enjoyed it. It's one of her favorites. I'll actually say I have not played large groups like three or four or five players very often, It's a very different experience at those player counts because you get to choose which of the players you're giving clues about and clues for. I think it's a much harder game in that, and I think that matches what we're going to say about the mind. So in a way, I sort of enjoy the slightly less tense, slightly more leisurely play of two-player for Hanabi. And in that setting, I think it is a wonderful game that anybody who's even slightly interested in the mechanics discussed should definitely pick up. I mean, gosh, I can't imagine it's more than 10 or $15 for the little box you get. And how long does it take you to play? My wife and I played two games before the podcast. The first game, we were not clicking at all because it's the first time we played in a few months. And we were out in about five minutes. So it can go very quickly downhill if you don't do well. The second game where we got uh, four points away from a perfect game, so we were clicking along pretty well, that was probably 20, 25 minutes. So if you're doing really well, it can take a little while. It's still mostly a filler, but if you're if you're if you're getting close to a perfect game, it'll take a bit longer. That's great though. I mean, for something that's so quick, so inexpensive and easily portable, it's a nice value, and I think that probably is the sweet spot for it is couples gaming. I certainly think if you want it to be more tense, adding people would do that for you. No question, at least in my experience. All right, Peter, uh, we've got a newer game to talk about that is similar in many ways. Why don't you tell us about The Mind? All right, so The Mind, I was going to get into the theme, but I have no idea what the theme is. It's funny, I looked it up on BoardGameGeek, I read through the rules again, there is no mention of theme anywhere. Now, I will say on the level cards, they show this little rabbit in like a karate or a ninja getup. So, I mean, there's something with rabbits and ninjas because there are... Basically, the only components of this game are cards. They're numbered 1 to 100 is the basic cards. And then you have life cards, which are just little pictures of rabbits. And there are throwing star cards, which I'll explain to you in a minute, which are pictures of ninja throwing stars. And then there are level cards, again, with all these pictures of bunny and karate outfits. So I assume there is something in there with a theme with a karate ninja rabbit going on. Clearly, it matters immensely for the game, just like Hanabi. (laughs) Yeah, so it's another game of trying to lay down cards in a numerical sequence. So you're going to, again, one is the lowest, all the way up to 100. This time, they're not in different colors, though. You're literally just trying to play the cards in numerical sequence. The big catch to this game is there's no giving clues, no anything. You literally just play your card when you think it is your turn to play a card. So... First round, you each get one card. So in a two-player game, I would get a card. Mike gets a card. If I have the 23, Mike has the 57. We just stare at each other until one of us puts down our card. And then the other person puts down your card. Second round, you get two cards and you do the same thing. 
So if you mess up the order, you do lose one of your lives. And depending on the number of players you have, you're going to have more or less lives. And when you get past certain rounds, you'll get more lives. The only other rule really is these throwing stars. At some point, you can look at each other and somebody will raise their hand. If everybody around the table raises their hand at the same time, you pause the game and everybody discards their lowest card. And so you get a little bit of information about that. But beside that, you're literally, the whole concept of the game is you're just staring at each other going, I'm not playing, you should play. I'm not playing, you should play. And you're just looking at each other trying to figure out when to play the cards. It sounds so stupid. I've heard people argue about whether this is a game or not. But to be honest, I can't see how you couldn't think it's a game. I think the people that are arguing over it either have only played it once or twice or haven't played it at all. Because I know a lot of people are like, that sounds stupid. Why would I want to play that? And to be honest, I thought the same thing before I played it. But as we get to later, it's really an interesting game. So Mike, why don't you get started with your number three? So my first one is a bit of an odd one, but it just kind of hit a sweet spot for me. So in the official rules, what you do to mark that every player is prepared to begin playing cards is you all put one hand into the circle, basically, in onto the table. And when everyone's hand is on the table, you take your hands back and you're ready to play. And in a similar way, whenever you want to use a shuriken, whenever you are doubtful about whose turn it is to play next, the shuriken allow you to each discard your lowest card. You all have to raise your hands up. So once you see one player raise their hand up, you can decide to go along with them or not to make that shuriken happen. And something about these sort of ritual movement the kind of shared silent movement of that just really gets to me in some way and already this game reminded me and it's been described this way in some of the bgg forums and stuff it reminds me of a theater game i'm an old theater actor from years back it reminds me of an old theater game where you just sit in a circle and try to say numbers 1 to 20 or 1 to 30 or 1 to 100 in order so 1 2 3 4 but without any kind of clues given, just kind of saying a number when you think it's your turn. And when I first heard about the mind, like Peter said, I thought this isn't even a game if you're just doing that. It's just a theater activity. But I didn't realize that you had only certain cards in your hand. I thought that everyone had one through ten divided among them, and it just seemed like kind of a dumb activity. But yeah, I I think that something about the sort of shared hand requirements makes it a bit more of an interesting group activity and game in my mind. And I just enjoy it more. I I like doing things together because you know you're supposed to do them together without even saying a word. And here's an interesting part about it. And and I didn't even realize this was an official rule, but sometimes you'll get distracted in the middle of the game, right? Because you're not supposed to have any talking at all about anything in your hand. And sometimes you'll get distracted. I mean, I know we were playing the other day with kids in the other room and they'd come in and start talking to us or we'd just been staring at each other for a while and like somebody drifted off, you know, into their own set of thoughts. Or as I'm about to explain in a minute, they were in, you know, conversation talking about something else in the middle of the game. And that can certainly happen in this because you just can't talk about the game itself. But one of the rules, and we didn't realize this was an official rule, is at some point you can say, wait a minute, let's just stop and put our hands in the middle again, and let's get started again. So it kind of resets that timer. Okay, wait a minute. We know none of us were ready to play, but where really were we? Because you do get this feel for each other. And so kind of that ritualistic thing you were talking about, at some point you go, wait a minute, where are we? I kind of lost track of it. Let's go ahead and put our hands in the middle and start back up again. And it's funny because we would do that naturally anyway. Yeah, I was going to say, we did that several times and I had never seen that part in the rule book. Yeah, but it's in the rule book. 
So I thought that was interesting. So I, yeah, I did it with you. I've done it with other people. Like sometimes it's just like you get to these tense moments and then somebody looks away or, or does something and you're like, wait a minute, are you still with us here? All right, let's put our hands back in and, and reset. So I, I do think you're right. I don't have that on my list, but I think those ritualistic movements and those ritualistic things really do help the game. So what's your number three, Peter? Yeah, so mine is that the game is super fast and accessible. To learn this game takes two seconds, because I don't even explain what the throwing stars are in the first round. Sometimes I'll explain it in the second round or at the beginning of the third round. Basically, I just give people one card each, and I say, our goal is to play these in numerical order. And the first game goes really quick, as we were saying with Hanabi, because you'll lose the game very fast. And I don't mind about that, because it is a game you get better at, and especially the more you play within that certain group. And it's funny because you have these moments where the game goes faster or slower and some people are faster or slower. So you start compensating for them, but they start compensating for you because they think they're faster than you and you're slower. And then you go the opposite. Now I'm the faster one and you're the slower one. And then all of a sudden it kind of syncs up. So this game is very fast and accessible, even for non-gamers. And one of my favorite parts about it is, and this just has happened naturally lately, even though there's not supposed to be any communication, we will hold full conversations completely unrelated to the game while we're playing the game. So it's that kind of game where everybody's attention has to be focused at the table, but you really can hold on a conversation that has nothing to do with the game and still play it really well. And I think that's kind of neat. So for me, this game is fast and accessible. Man, I I cannot imagine doing that at all. That would drive me crazy. (laughs) You know, in most games it does, but for whatever reason in this game, I don't have a problem at all. We did it, I've done it twice in the last two weeks playing it. I played it with a serious group of gamers at Beer Mongers, which is the Secret Cabal, shout out to them. Their Tuesday night, every other week game thing they do at a bar with four people I didn't know we were talking about whatever, just ourselves, kids, whatever, while we were playing it. And then with our neighbors, who I've mentioned many times, we literally played this game all night the other night. We started at six and and we were still playing at one in the morning. Now, certainly we had dinner and did other things in between, but we played this game for, I mean, what, seven hours is crazy. Yeah, I mean, I I still, as we'll get into later in both the design discussion and later on in my list, I don't think I would enjoy playing the game with conversation going on at the same time. But that's just me. I'm not saying anything about the game itself. All right. I've certainly been like a super fanboy here. So <laughs> I'm going to keep my, my thoughts secret till the end. But uh, clearly I'm not doing a good job of that. All right. So, Mike, what's your number two? My number two is another pro. And actually, I would say for both these games, I think they're all pros. And it doesn't, doesn't mean that they're perfect games by any means. But there's not much to either of them mechanically. So there's not a lot to criticize. And the second one for me is the escalating level of tension as you have more and more cards in your hand. This reminds me a lot of one of my favorite Trump games that I used to play a lot back in the day. It's called, and sorry, there's a word some people consider a bad word in here, so I'll just spell it out. O-H-E-L-L. And that card game is very similar to this. You start out with one card each, then two card each, then three card each, then four card each, and you're trying to use Trump and play and the game gets much more complicated and much more difficult to kind of figure out all the permutations of the card play as you have more and more cards in your hand. And it's just a lot of fun to have that simplistic start to a game, that nice little lead in that gets more and more tough and complex as you go along. And I think this game does it brilliantly going all the way up to level 12 if you're playing with two players and 
Did we make we, we we won once, didn't we, Peter? Yeah, we won our last game the other night with two hearts left. That's right. Yeah, so I would not say it's as tough as playing a perfect game in Hanabi. I've certainly played a lot less of the mind and still gotten to the highest level there. But it's it's definitely really cool to see how the game kind of becomes more complicated and harder to figure out the timing as you go up in the higher levels. Absolutely, that's a great one. Uh, my number two is the throwing stars. And it's interesting because it's a, a small little mechanic, and at first you don't get it, really, and you don't even know when to use it. And to be honest, I don't even know if I know when to use it for best effect now. It's basically when everybody's staring at each other so long, somebody just throws up their hand. And the interesting part about the throwing stars is in some games I've played, I've been the one to raise my hand first. I'm looking around. Nobody else is raising their hand. And that in and of itself is kind of communication to me. Absolutely. I'm not going to go over, you know, what I think it means or anything else, because I want you to to learn this by yourself. And I've had situations where I've been the first to raise my hand, and then one other person hesitantly did it a little while later, and then I put my hand down, and then everybody else raised their hand. But I had my hand down now, so we didn't use that throwing star, and the level of communication that's there without communication being there. So you're not using words, but there are certainly hints and actions and timing It's not as simple as just playing the cards in order, or you're not allowed to communicate at all. There's a lot of communication that happens at the table, even without using words. And certainly you can't, you know, you're not supposed to give clues or things like that with your body, but there's certainly things that you do, like someone leaning back, someone leaning forward, someone putting their card almost on, but not exactly on. I mean, there are these subtle clues in this language that does develop there. And it's going to be different for every group. Similar to what I said with Hanabi, it's really interesting to me how that language develops throughout the game. So that's my number two is using the stars. Yeah, I didn't put those on my list, but it's definitely a cool little additional mechanic. And I agree that it can even lead into sort of unintentional clues, which is fun. Absolutely. All right. So Mike, what's your big number one? You touched on this a bit already, but I'll compare it to Hanabi to sort of explain this. In Hanabi, as I said, you develop some tactics and strategies with the group that lead you closer and closer to victory. Here, it's less about tactics and strategies and more about finding the heartbeat of the group you're playing with. How long does it take Peter to lay down a difference of 10 or 20 or 30? How does Jerry act when he has a 90 in his hand? And I guess it is sort of similar to what you were saying, the language but I described it as the rhythm of a group. And that, for me, is the coolest thing here, because when you get that rhythm right, and it's very similar, again, to Magic Maze, when you're sort of all popping along without needing to say a single word, it's a pretty magical experience. And it really thrills me when we make, especially when it's a really close play, Like, I have the 74, and you have the 75, and somebody else has the 77. And just somehow, through dumb luck or whatever, we play them in the exact right order. It's exciting. So, the process of discovering the rhythm of a group and then trying to live within that rhythm is really a pretty amazing feeling for me. And that is why I can't imagine, personally, playing the game while full conversations go on. Because my attention is riveted to the people around the table with me and just listening to how they're breathing and, you know, if I could, listening to their heartbeats. So I I can't imagine putting kind of conversation in between that. 
Yeah, and I think it's going to be different for different groups. Funny, my my number one is very similar. I called it The Flow. And you're right. I didn't think about Magic Maze until earlier when you were talking about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, it does get into that mind meld moment just like Magic Maze does. And those are the best. And the thing I think that is coolest about this game is when I play the 75 and you had the 74 and Jerry had the 72, we go, oh, man, that was close. We just got unlucky there. But when we play them in the right order, it's like, yeah, we are awesome. You know, we just totally sank together on that. So I don't know. For me, the game makes you feel really good when it goes the right way. But you don't feel so bad when you go the wrong way unless somebody's like holding on to the 55 and you're like playing the 74. You're like, where were you at? (laughs) Sure. So there's sort of like a cognitive bias going on there. Your brain's fooling you into thinking you're better than you are. But who cares? Because that's a great feeling to have. But it happens and it happens to everybody and you see it and everybody at the table's high-fiving as you get through these tense moments. And for whatever reason, and I don't know what it is, but you do sync up with the people at your table. Now, with more people in the group, it's going to take longer for the sync up to happen. Two people might be synced up at one moment, and then one person might be off. And then you try to sync with that other person, and maybe two different people are synced up. So you definitely get moments of people syncing up. And then, I don't know, people say, I can only imagine playing this game once or twice. I can't ever imagine playing it once or twice, because the first couple of games... I mean, I would want to play it five or six times just with the same group just to get better and better at the game. It's not like it takes that long to play. So for me, the longer you play with a group, the better you get with that group. And then if I go play with a different group, some of those lessons will come with me, but none of the other people might have learned the same lessons. So it's really interesting how you, you know, you need to get into this flow, as I called it, with the group you're playing with and every group's going to play it completely different. So, Mike, why don't you go ahead and lead us into your final thoughts? Yeah, so it's interesting. If I had not played Hanabi tonight, as we're recording, I would have put the mind way heads and shoulders above it. Because of the newness, because I've been playing the mind a lot, and I really do love it. I think it's a fantastic filler game if your group can go along with these, you know, limited communication and constraints the game places on you. Once it's available, I would recommend anybody who enjoys social gaming or cooperative gaming pick it up. And I imagine the price point won't be too high because, again, it's just, you know, a hundred and something cards. Yeah, I think 15 is the one that I've seen, but even if it was 20. Yeah, I mean, at 15 or 20, I'd be happy to buy multiple copies and give some to my friends and family. So that being said, since we are doing both games at the same time... Having played Hanabi again, I would say they're actually neck and neck, and it would be I would be hard-pressed to say which one I enjoy more. I think it would depend on what sort of gaming context I was in and what group I was playing with. What is interesting is that this game is called The Mind, but Hanabi is where I feel intellectually challenged and feel intellectually stimulated when I make a good choice. I feel like I actually formulate strategies and tactics in Hanabi and make intelligent things happen. The mind is very much a gut kind of heart and listening based experience. And that doesn't mean that it's better or worse. It's just I don't feel clever in the mind when I do well. I feel emotionally fulfilled in a way. But they're both great. I would say pick up either one. I am a big fan of both of them. I would say they're both easily in my my top 20 of all time, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to play Hanabi more, but I think everybody's been able to tell just from my enthusiasm about this game. I've played this game a lot lately. 
a lot. Hours and hours of the mind, which is crazy. When you hear the rules and what they are, you're like, why would you play that for more than five minutes? And for anybody that says this isn't a game, you're crazy. This is definitely a game. There is no question in my mind. Games are something you get better at. They're something that are shared experiences. They're something with rules. This has all of that. So I, I don't know what else it would be beside a game. So for me, it is amazing. This would probably be in my top five co-ops, not just co-ops for new people. Certainly, it's probably rocketed to the top of that list. So if we were to redo episode zero, this one would certainly be up near the top. I, I, I can't imagine anybody that you couldn't play this game with. Well, I would warn you, it might fade a little bit for you when you're not playing it like 10 times a week. <laughs> but I, I'm with you right now. I'm just anticipating it's not going to be as high as I think it is right now. And here's the other part of it. I can't, Im well, I mean, I just did play it, you know, for seven hours the other night, as I said. We probably played 15 games in those seven hours. We played it with both three and four players. So, I don't know. I mean, for me, this game right now is at the top of my most excited to play list. I'm certainly going to bring this to Origins with me. Now, as Mike and I both alluded to, this game is not officially out yet, and we don't have an official copy. I used, I know people have used cards for the game. I know I'm using my six nymphed cards, but I'll tell you, it doesn't matter. I am buying this game when it comes out. I want to support the designer. I want to support the publisher on this. I want to reward people for coming up with something this good. And so for me right now, I already rated it on BGG. I haven't been rating a lot of things lately, but I rated it a 10. I really do think this is an amazing game. And I played it at all player counts. I played it a lot with two, I played it a lot with three, and I played it a lot with four. It's certainly harder the more people you have, but I love the different experiences. And I think the reason it's harder with more players is not because there are more cards to go around. Certainly that's part of it. They do compensate by giving you more life and you have to play less rounds. But the reason it's harder with four people is you have to sync with four people. And so for me, that's, that's really the difference. Whereas with two people, if you can both get on the same page, that's definitely a, a lot easier in my opinion. So the only negative I will say about this game is I wish there was a way to change the difficulty, especially with the two-player game. I think you're only starting with two life. So starting with one life I don't think is really feasible. I mean, you could just make a simple mistake early and be knocked out. So I do wish there was a way to scale difficulty more, but beside that, I really don't have any complaints. Well, I would say it's pretty easy to make the game easier. Start with more life, start with more shuriken. Right. And even though we did already win a two-player game, I think that was a big confluence of being in sync with each other and also getting really lucky, so I don't think I'd ever want to play it harder than that level. Yeah, but I can imagine if you like have been playing with someone for a while and get really good and you're really in sync with that person, you might want to do something. Maybe instead of starting with one star, you start with no stars. Now, you'll still get some throughout the course of the game because when you complete certain levels, you get more life or more stars. But maybe maybe a simple change like that would make it a little more difficult anyway. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add on, I'm not quite as high on the game as you are. I think if I was going to rate it right now, I'd probably rate it an 8 I'm certainly ready to play the second anyone suggests it, and I'll suggest it sometimes. But there are many co-ops with kind of deeper and longer experiences that I would be going to if I had my preference. So, But definitely it's still a big, a big like for me, a big recommend. The second it's available, pick it up. You won't be disappointed, I don't think. Absolutely. All right, so let's get into 
what we haven't been doing tonight, which is limited communication, because we've been doing a lot of communication <laughs> today. <laughs> That'd be fun. We should do a podcast where we're not allowed to talk at all. Well, you know what? Just put us on mute and listen for the next 15 minutes, and you'll have our design discussion in limited communication. <laughs> so limited communication, we're spreading the, the net a bit wide here. Clearly, Hanabi and the mind. The mind has no communication. Hanabi has very strictly limited communication. Something like Magic Maze has no communication except for at certain parts during the gameplay. Something like Space Alert has limited communication, like it cuts out communication at certain times. And then many, I would say even most, card-based games will have some limits on what you can share. Like you can talk about your cards but can't show them. You can vaguely reference your cards but can't give specifics. So there's a lot of different ways that games limit communications, and we're just going to discuss some of the things to consider, maybe the, some of the pros and cons to limiting communication in your games, if you're designing one. The first game I can think of that I remember this being in is Shadows Over Camelot. That is exactly what I wrote down. I was like, the first time I remember this specifically being referenced in a rule book I read, because Shadows is one of the first hobby games I really got into, was exactly that, Shadows Over Camelot. But it's so funny because you'd have cards numbered one to five and you're trying to make these poker hands and things like that. <laughs> and we weren't allowed to use communication, but, you know, you get these these tells within your group. And I'm like, I need a little help on this, which means I need like a one or a two, right? Or I need a lot of help on this, even though it's only one card. It's like, yeah, that means you need a four or five. So I was, I guess, cheating the system even before we were creating our own languages for these things. Well, no, you, you weren't. The rule book, from what I remember, specifically references and even gives examples of saying, like, I need a big assist or a little assist. So I think they always intended for you to give it. It's just you couldn't give the exact number. It's that little bit of limitation that, I guess, adds a bit of randomness to the experience. Right, but I think it would be interesting to do it with almost no communication the way that these games do it now. It would certainly make the game a lot harder. But I'm going to have to go back to that one again and, and try that. And maybe we'll review it here in the next couple of months. Well, although that's not fully cooperative, don't forget. Yeah, that's true. Although, to be honest, I've only played it strictly cooperative. I've never played it with a hidden trader. But we're getting a little bit off topic here. So let's get back to limited communication. Yeah, so what are, what's one of the first things you uh, thought would be important or could be a benefit or a negative to limited communication in games? I think the number one benefit, and Hanabi does it really well, and I think the mind doesn't do it as well, but I think they all have it, is these tense moments. If you want to create tension, having somebody play something without perfect information really like gets your heartbeat going and really is like, gosh, is it really me? Or should I really play this card? Or should I really discard this card? Actually, maybe this would be great for a horror-themed game, having these tense moments. And we said that Legendary Encounters Alien had this, and it is those limited information moments where you're flipping over a card or whatever where you get it. Yeah, so for me, though, those tense moments are really the cool thing that comes out of these limited communication games. Yeah, I'm 100% with you on that. These games, more than almost any other, can actually leave me a bit out of breath when I'm done playing. Especially the ones that have a timed element, Magic Maze being a real-time game. And I would say the mind is real-time as well, because time itself is determining when you play or don't play a card. So that in and of itself kind of amps up the, uh, the stress and tension. But a sort of counter to that, a negative side of things, and this is a big one for me, and I think it is part of my personality. So this is certainly going to be 
different for different groups and individuals. But with that tension and that stress, I experience a lot of frustration and even anger when things don't go well or a mistake is made. And again, this is totally me. I don't think this is going to be an average thing for players. But in Hanabi, I'll get upset with my wife when I think I've given her a perfectly clear clue, but it wasn't clear for her because of the limited communication. In the mind, I'll get upset with Peter when he plays a card that's 20 apart really quickly when I thought that our sort of implied communication in the flow of the group was that a 20-point difference took longer to play. In Magic Maze, I'll use the giant pawn, and I've actually angered one player enough that he now will never play the game with me again. (laughs) He said that quite clearly because of the limited communication and having to find ways to get people to do things and getting frustrated with them when they don't do it correctly. So if you're like me and you get really into the tactical cooperation of the limited communication, it can lead to some hurt feelings because you can't explain yourself fully, so there's a much greater chance for miscommunications and mistakes to be made. Yeah, I mean, the flip side of that, again, I also think is it leads to new forms of communication. And that's one of the other things I put here. I think these limited communication games lead to moments like we were talking about earlier where I raise my hand and that leads to a cascade of things happening at the table, which gives me more information, even though no words have been said. I think that leads to moments, like you were saying, in Hanabi, where I tell you three blue cards, and I'm expecting you to know something from that clue that I'm giving you. So I do think new communication forms come out from this, and I really think it's neat that you can think in different ways, and these games kind of force you to do that. And you look at it, and it's like, this is so dumb. I just have to play the next highest card. I just don't know whether I have it or not. And just the communication that comes out of not being able to talk. Absolutely. Another big benefit of these games, and this goes along with kind of my frustration and anger, is that they do limit or completely eliminate an alpha player problem, which I know is a big concern for a lot of people playing cooperative games, especially something like Hanabi or The Mind. (laughs) There can't be an alpha player because... You are so limited in your communication that there's no way to really overcome that and completely take over the game. So that's sort of the positive side of the frustration. I think I might get more frustrated because I have alpha player tendencies coming out and I can't use them to actually control the game as much as I would like. (laughs) But I guess that's still better than an alpha player ruining the experience for everyone else by telling them exactly what to do throughout the game. Yeah, it might not be better for you. It might be better for the other people at the table, though. Yeah, and I I just need to get over myself and (laughs) let it be a game, clearly. (laughs) Well, and I'll agree. I mean, there's certainly been times in the mind where I'm like, oh, man, I wish you were a little bit faster. Oh, man, I wish you were a little bit slower. But the thing that's interesting to me is people compensate, right? If they realize they're playing slower than the group, they're going to start playing faster. But yeah, it is interesting that you mentioned Alpha Player because there is a limited amount of that still with these games between hands. It's like, oh man, I did this because I wanted you to do that. So I do still think there are some co-op elements to the game as well. I think there are group discussions that happen during the non-limited communication part of the game, but not necessarily while you're playing. You don't have that direct control over it. Another benefit of these games, and this does touch on something you mentioned earlier, Peter, is that you can drastically increase the tactical and strategic feeling of a game 
without actually increasing the complexity of the mechanics and the elements in the game. So as you said, Hanabi and the Mind are incredibly simplistic tasks being presented to the group. You know, just put cards in order. <laughs> That's it. Absolutely. But because of the limited communication, it becomes a much more strategic or tactical experience. Dresden Files is another one. You have this shared pool of resources, but I'm not allowed to say how much the cards in my hand cost or exactly what I need for them. And maybe you are in that, but we, we usually don't like go exactly until like I need five points for this. And I think the rules might prohibit that. And so because of that, it becomes a bit more of a tactical puzzle. I have to guess, okay, how much should I be leaving for you? What might you be trying to do on your turn? Which actually, I didn't think about this until just now, but in some cases, I think the limited communication actually ups the listening and concern and consideration you have for your fellow players. Because they are not able to exactly articulate what they need and what is going to happen on their turn. They can't say, hey, here's what I'm going to do. You almost need to pay more attention to them, more attention to their nonverbal cues, and also consider the possibilities of what they might do. It almost gets it a bit into a competitive headspace, because a big thing of competitive games, especially with hidden hands, is I have to look at my opponent and consider all the possibilities of what they might do on their turn. So with limited communication, you get a little bit of that competitive mystery into your cooperative experience. So that's pretty friggin' cool, I gotta say. Yeah, I agree with that, too. You know, one of mine was straightforward, like you said. These games, especially the two we talked about today, are very straightforward. And to some degree, I think they need to be. Now, I think as a design discussion later on, we'll probably talk a little bit about putting them in more complex games. But for me, I think the sweet spot for these games is the shorter games similar to The Mind and Hanabi, where if you do mess up, it isn't going to be the end of the world, right? Yeah, okay, we lost that game. Well, let's shuffle. I mean, it's literally shuffling a deck of cards and, and resetting the life counter and starting all over again. So I do think it might be more of a frustrating experience if the games were longer. So if you had a two-hour game that came down to, did I play the 74 or 75 first at the end of it? That might be more frustrating than the current form that they are in now. Yeah, I agree with you if you're going in with the very limited communication or completely limited communication. But something I wanted to mention for designers is that you can take elements of limited communication and work them into your larger game and often create a greater sense of tension or a little bit more tactical possibility. So to give you a few examples, Space Alert only knocks out your communication for short periods of time, but that greatly ratchets up the tension in my experience in that you desperately want to tell somebody to do something, but you're unable to do so for 10 or 15 seconds. Mountains of Madness, which we discussed a few weeks back, adds in these madness elements that will restrict how you talk and maybe make the group not understand you fully sometimes. And even something like Shadows Over Camelot, you're not allowed to say the non-thematic numbers of the cards. You can only speak in more thematic terms. I need a large force to help me defeat these barbarians. So limited communication in small doses can even help to improve the theme of your game, depending on what that theme is. And actually, a game I didn't even think about till just now that does this perfectly, and I don't even think we mentioned this in the review, but is Gloomhaven. In Gloomhaven, you're playing two cards, but you can't tell somebody when you're acting. 
You can't tell them what you're doing. You say, I am planning on going over here and killing this guy, but you can't guarantee that because you don't know what's going to come out. And because of that, everyone around the table has to kind of tactically plan around that because you have certain objectives you really need to do. And even with the personal objective you have, you can't tell people at the table what you're trying to do. So they see you run off and open a door and open a new room. They're like, what is going on here? That doesn't make any sense at all. But it's all in that limited communication. Yeah, and sort of the hidden information aspect of things. I never thought of this before when we were reviewing that game, but I really do think that is part of what makes that game so great is that limited communication you have with each other. Yeah, and again, I think you could, I think it's a positive thing to throw into most games. Peter and I just finished uh, the Path to Carcosa, the second full campaign for Arkham Horror LCG. And that one, in these madness effects, had a lot of limited communication because you get, would get these madness cards in your hand that would limit actions you could take or even encourage you to do negative things to the other players, but you aren't allowed to talk about them at all or share that they're in your hand. So I think very many types of cooperative games can benefit from some hidden information or limited communication in the game just to ratchet up tension and in some cases even increase cooperation. Yeah, and even Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. One of our favorite things is when somebody goes insane. (laughs) That's right. You have no idea what their new objective is going to be. We're going back to our whole insanity discussion with uh, Kirkman from the Eldritch Horror episode, but I love all that stuff. Bring it on as much as you can. Yeah, and I think a lot of people associate this with semi-co-op games, but as you've seen today, they don't have to be semi-co-op to have that same level of hidden information and tension in the game. Yeah, I mean, I always thought, I think Dead of Winter has a lot of really cool things going on. I always wondered what would have happened if there were no traders, but just your goal cards were more punishing and you couldn't share them. Like, what would happen with all of you being trustworthy and all on the same side? but having these potentially very damaging objectives to fulfill. Yeah, and I know we've experimented with that a little bit in some of our games. That It's never fully come together in a design yet, but that's certainly something we want to experiment with even going into the future, is some kind of hidden roles that each person has to do certain things because, you know, that's that's in their personality or whatever else, you know, without the trader roles. But we do think that those personal goals are, are pretty cool. Absolutely. All right. Well, I don't have anything else on my list. How about you? No, I, I got through all of them. But I do think we've kind of discovered on our own some cool things about this topic. So I look forward to more limited communication in co-op games in the future, definitely. And you can probably look forward to it in some of our games. I wouldn't even mind trying to design one of these little games. The mind has definitely inspired me. I, I've never been a fan of micro games, small games, but it really has inspired me to see what we could come up with in this limited communication field. Hey, I'm, I'm all for it. Let's get something together. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for making it through another episode. I really think this is one of our coolest design discussions. I've gotten a lot out of it myself. Yeah, me too. I'm right with you. Thanks for joining us again. And Colin and Steve will catch you next week. And we will talk to you in two weeks. Have a great one, everybody. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-OpCast. We'll be back in two weeks to review another cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, if you like co-op games and why else would you be here, check out coopboardgames.com. They have some great cooperative board game material. 
If you want to contact us, feel free to follow us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at MVPBoardGames at gmail.com. So what's your number two, Peter? So I'm looking at my number two, and I don't even know what it means. Oh, okay, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great side. My number two is incomprehensible. So, really good one, number two. I don't know where it's going with that. What were we talking? What were you talking about last? I alpha player. <laughs> oh yeah. So I have no idea where you went from there. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> Mike, did you hear that? That was my mind telling you goodbye.